0: Charges will be dropped against Alec Baldwin. The lead starts right now. The Hollywood actor, soon to be cleared of an inv- involuntary manslaughter charge after that gun shot on a movie set killed his colleague. But is Baldwin legally cleared for good? And a father and daughter both shot after the six year old's basketball rolled into a neighbor's yard. Another case of tragedy after a child's innocent mistake. Her grandmother will join me this hour. Plus, the incredible sight is the most powerful unmanned rocket ever made explodes midair. Why Elon Musk's SpaceX says it triggered the fiery scene on purpose. Welcome to Lena, Jake Tapper. We start with big breaking news in our pop culture lead. Prosecutors say that they plan to dismiss charges against actor Alec Baldwin after that prop gun he was holding fired during movie rehearsals and killed the cinematographer of his film. That update is according to Baldwin's attorney, who says that his attorneys are now pushing for a, quote, proper investigation into what exactly went wrong on the set of the film Rust. In October of 2021. Let's get straight to CNN's uh, Chloe Malas. Uh, Chloe, what led to this decision?
1: Well, I mean, look, this is something, Jake, that Alec Baldwin's attorneys and legal team have been pushing for aggressively. We know that a month ago, after a court filing by Alec's attorney, Luke Nikas, that the special prosecutor, due to a conflict of interest for holding also a a job in the House of Representatives due to New Mexico state law, you're not supposed to do both jobs, she stepped aside and the DA recused herself. So that sort of was the first, you know, red herring, so to speak. And then, you know, before that, Jake, I want to point out that the charges were downgraded. So the fire enhancement charge was removed, uh, which meant that Alec Baldwin could only face up to 18 months in prison if convicted of one of those manslaughter charges. But I just want to read you the full statement uh, from Alec Baldwin's attorneys, uh, Luke Nikos and Alex Spiro, who just spoke to me moments ago saying, we are pleased with the decision to dismiss the case against Alec Baldwin and encourage a proper investigation into the facts and circumstances of this tragic accident. And Jake, we know that the filing should happen later today or tomorrow.
0: All right, Chloe Malas, thank you so much with the breaking news. With me now to discuss CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig Ellie, I have to give credit where credit's due. You've You've always been skeptical of these charges.
2: Yeah, Jake, this case has been marred from the start by prosecutorial incompetence. Moments after the DA announced the charges in this case, our colleague Josh Campbell interviewed her and she was utterly unable to articulate a coherent theory of the case. Josh asked her whether she knew where those live rounds came from. She said, no, I don't know how you charge a case like this without knowing that. Josh Campbell asked the DA, are you charging Alec Baldwin in his capacity as the producer or as an actor? And she said both, which is two completely different theories. And on top of that, Jake, as Chloe just alluded to, this case was wildly overcharged. The the most serious charge they brought against Alec Baldwin initially was a firearms charge that was not on the books at the time of this incident. You cannot do that. They had to dismiss that charge. So it's no surprise given the pattern of prosecutorial incompetence we've seen throughout this case.
0: Um, Obviously, there are a lot of people watching right now who probably uh, are of the belief that there are two legal systems, one for the wealthy and one for everyone else. Um, Is that a factor here or are the facts just not ones that would justify uh, any sort of of legal charge?
2: I really see it as the latter, Jake. I do not think Alec Baldwin is getting any kind of special preferential treatment here. If anything, it could be that he was singled out because- He's a high profile name. Sometimes prosecutors trying to advance their own uh, names and their own political futures will do that. But I think if you just substitute out Alec Baldwin and make this an anonymous person on a movie set, someone who was unknown, I do not think that the charges would have ever justified involuntary manslaughter charges like Alec Baldwin faced.
0: The armorer, I believe her name is uh, Hannah Gutierrez. Uh, she is, is still facing charges, at least as of right now. Do you think those
2: will also be dismissed? I think they're teetering on the brink right now. I think the theory of the case can be a little more straightforward as to the armorer. She's clearly the one who had a duty of care with respect to the firearm. So it's less convoluted than the theory against Alec Baldwin, but those charges could be could be teetering as well.
0: All right, Ellie Honig, thank you so much. Uh, big breaking news there, but we have another story, a big one in our world lead. Apocalyptic scenes in Sudan where fighting between rival armed forces continues to rage and there is A new plan from the Pentagon to try to get some Americans out. More than 300 people are dead in this war, and 3,000 are injured after six days of fierce fighting. That's according to the World Health Organization. Today we saw smoke rising from the capital amid broken ceasefires between the Sudanese army and the forces it is fighting, the Rapid Support Forces. Rapid Support Forces, that's a paramilitary group that once was aligned with Sudan's army in the early 2000s until there was a coup and that ultimately forced these two rival leaders to share power. Uh, but that deal fell apart. And now many civilians in Khartoum, including Americans, are pinned down. They're stuck. They're forced to shelter in places. firefights rage throughout urban areas. Those who have tried to get out tell CNN, quote, we saw corpses in the street. And as Pentagon officials take this all in, they have announced that they are positioning American troops closer to the border, With Sudan. They are getting ready to immediately evacuate U.S. Embassy personnel and their families if necessary. CNN's Kylie Atwood is standing by at the State Department, but let's start with Oren Lieberman, who's at the Pentagon for us right now. Oren, uh, what kind of U.S. military presence is moving in
3: uh, and how close uh, to the action? Jake, the Defense Department says they have forces near Sudan that are ready and planning for contingencies and preparing because of the deteriorating situation you just mentioned in the event they're needed for essentially emergency situations. And that would include securing the embassy and evacuating embassy personnel. Now, DOD won't say what those forces are or where they're located, but a U.S. defense official has said there are hundreds of Marines at this point at Camp Lemonnier in Djibouti. Now, that's still about 700 miles or so from Khartoum, but that is one of the places the U.S. has forces ready to go. And that includes... An aviation element, that is aircraft that can bring in forces, move in ground troops that would be used if needed to secure an embassy and to evacuate embassy personnel. At the moment, according to DOD data, the Defense Department only has about 13 or 14 troops based in Sudan. Most of those Marines for embassy security, clearly not enough given the situation we're seeing now. So DOD has forces in Djibouti, perhaps perhaps elsewhere as well, waiting for the situation to allow itself to go in and waiting for that call that it's needed and that the decision has been made to send troops in with that aviation element if needed to secure the embassy and bring those out. So, Jake, we'll keep you updated on how that situation goes and if the U.S. either adds more forces in the region as needed or waits to see how the situation develops at this point.
0: Kylie uh, Atwood at the State Department for us. What are you hearing from officials there in Foggy Bottom about the current status uh, of embassy personnel? Are they safe?
4: Well, what I'm hearing is that the conditions on the ground really matter here. And a senior U.S. official told me today that they don't believe that an evacuation is imminent because of the volatile situations on the ground there. So what State Department officials are watching for is a ceasefire to actually take place. Obviously, there's one in place right now, but it is not being respected. It's a very, very violent place to be right now. And so they're watching for that. They're watching for a ceasefire so that they could actually carry out this potential evacuation. And then the other thing to consider is that there are about 16,000 Americans who are in the country right now. A lot of those are dual citizens and aren't going to try and leave the country. But, of course, some of them might. And this is a unique situation, of course, because the main airport in the country is closed. One of the borders, the Chad-Sudan border, is also closed. And so uh, I asked the State Department deputy spokesperson if they would consider standing up any kind of support for those Americans if they want to get out of the country. He said that they are planning for all contingencies. Wouldn't say specifically if that was one that was on the table and listen to a bit of what else he said.
5: I'm just not going to get ahead of the process here, as this is a very fluid and dynamic situation. Uh, But like I just said, it is currently not safe to undertake a U.S. government-coordinated evacuation of private U.S. citizens.
4: And when you asked about Jake, the U.S. diplomats, if they're safe, according to Vedant, that deputy spokesperson, he said that they are all accounted for right now. But what we know is that they aren't all in one place. So the U.S., the State Department wants to get them all in one place so that they could carry out some sort of evacuation. And we should note that it's not typical for the State Department to assist U.S. US citizens to get out of a country. But in this unique situation, they may have to consider something. Jake?
0: All right. Kylie Atwood at the State Department, Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon. John, thanks to both of you. The same brutal private Wagner mercenary army that is accused of committing war crimes uh, in Ukraine appears to be putting its thumbs on the scales of the unrest in Sudan as well. CNN's Nima Albagher joins us now. And Nima, before we get to the Wagner group, mm. how, how likely is, is a possible new ceasefire in Sudan, do you
6: think? Well, given that most of the proposed ceasefires so far have, have failed to the soundtrack of aerial bombardment, it, people are very unwilling to trust. There were brief moments where many of those we were, were speaking to on the ground say that they risked the bullets outside and, the, uh, and being caught in the mortar strikes to try and get to whatever local stores were open and resupply. But even that is becoming too dangerous. And while that's playing out, There is a growing body of evidence, Jake, that we have uncovered that those who are seeking to opportunistically uh, further entrench themselves in the region, uh, Russia's paramilitary proxy group, Wagner, have begun to try and influence one of the parties. They, we believe, from the evidence that we've seen, are resupplying, have been resupplying the rapid support force paramilitary group. Take a look at this. The Sudanese and the Libyan armies celebrated a successful joint operation Wednesday, April 19th, near the remote desert border between Libya and Sudan, having captured the Chevrolet garrison belonging to the rival Sudanese paramilitary rapid support forces, the RSF. But why is this garrison important, given how far it is from the existential fight in Sudan's capital, Khartoum? Because CNN can reveal that the fight in Khartoum is being influenced by what was happening at that garrison. A Russian resupply campaign backed by a key regional player aimed at turning the tide in Sudan's war in favor of the RSF, who have been a key recipient of Russian training and military aid. In collaboration with All Eyes on Wagner, a research group focusing on Russian proxy Wagner, CNN investigated the group's current presence in Libya. You can see here on April 16th, one day after the fighting began in Khartoum, a Russian Aleutian 76 transport plane at the Al-Jufra base in Libya, previously identified by American intelligence as a Wagner base. Three days later, this same plane is spotted by flight tracker, aviation expert Gurjan, coming back from the Russian airbase in Latakia, Syria, before returning to the Libyan airbase in Khadim. Images of that same plane began circulating online April 17th, heading in the direction of Sudan. Sudanese and regional sources tell CNN that weaponry was airdropped to the RSF within that time frame, April 15th to April 18th, to the Chevrolet garrison, during a period of fierce fighting, boosting the RSF. The al Khadim and Al-Jufra bases, where the Wagner planes departed from in Libya, are under the control of Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar, who commands territory in the east of Libya. Haftar and the commander of the Rapid Support Forces, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, a.k.a. Hametti, have in common strategic alliances, one with Wagner, who Haftar is hosting in his territory in Libya, and whom a previous CNN investigation exposed as working with Hametti to extract Sudanese gold, a second with the United Arab Emirates, who tapped Hemeti to send forces to the conflict in Yemen and backed Haftar in the fighting in Libya. What does it all mean for the ongoing misery and conflict in Sudan? It means that both a regional Libyan general, Haftar, and a global player, Russia, are putting their thumbs on the scale, which raises the stakes for the region, for the global balance of power, and for the people of Sudan caught in the crossfire. We reached out to both Haftar and Wagner and didn't receive a response to our request for comment. An RSF spokesperson denied that they were currently receiving uh, support from Libya or Russia, although they had previously denied, when our investigation exposed their relationship with Wagner, that there was a relationship. So at least this time they've admitted that they had a previous relationship, for what that's worth, Jake.
0: Yeah, baby steps on on the trail to truth. Nemeh Elbeger, thank you so much. As always, amazing journalism. Coming up next, a massive explosion in the sky. Why SpaceX is claiming it blew up its own rocket on purpose during today's launch. Plus, I'll speak with the lead attorney waging a different other defamation lawsuit against Fox. This one almost twice as large as the one settled with Dominion. And the rising cost of senior care and the heavy financial burden this will put on loved ones of baby boomers as they retire. Stay with us. In our out-of-this-world lead, or kind of, SpaceX now says that that massive explosion in the sky this morning was triggered by its own system when the rocket went off course just minutes after taking off today. Not exactly the outcome Tesla, Twitter, and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk was hoping for. The unmanned rocket was supposed to make nearly one full lap around Earth and splash down off the coast of Hawaii. Instead, it broke apart over the Gulf of Mexico. CNN's Ed Levandera... Is in South Padre Island, Texas, where he saw the explosion uh, with his own eyes. Ed,
7: what what went wrong here? Well, this uh, spaceship was able to take off, cross the, uh, the the launch pad for several minutes, but then uh, about three minutes into the flight, it started. Uh, tumbling, spinning out of control, and SpaceX officials now confirm in a statement this afternoon saying that the uh, vehicle experienced multiple engines that were out during the flight and lost altitude and began to tumble. The flight termination system was commanded on both the boosters and the ship, and essentially what they're saying there is that they hit the self-destruct button, so it was uh, 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 SpaceX officials that caused the explosion ending the flight of this, and this is, you know, as the euphoria of all of this moment has worn off. It's a reminder of the very serious stakes that are at play here. The Federal Avi- Aviation Administration says that it will oversee the mishap investigation and that future flights, and this is the agency that essentially gives SpaceX the green light to travel, uh, say that the, the, those green lights will not be issued until uh, public safety can be ensured. So. Uh, you know, some very serious stakes here at at play, uh, Jake. Also, in the crowd today, there were several members of what will eventually be the first crew members whenever humans fly aboard the Starship rocket. Uh, One of those members is a man by the name of Yemi Akimendele, and he is a uh, uh, Czech-Nigerian multimedia artist. He witnessed this explosion with his own eyes as well, and despite that, he says he's not backing out from A future mission.
8: The experience of today surpassed my expectations. Like my expectations were here, and today we went here. (laughs) The wave of sound came, uh, you know, to us, and it started to tremble, and my heart was skipping. I was thinking, wow, so many people tearing up. I was like, wow, and we are so far from it, and now if we are in the epicenter of it, how will that feel? You know, so that's very hard for me to imagine.
7: Yeah, Jake. Hard for him to imagine because eventually he might be riding in that rocket. So clearly, he wants everything to go perfectly smoothly in, in the future. Elon Musk says that they learned a lot to, from today's launch and that they are planning to launch another test flight in the months ahead. So a quick time frame uh, on pushing for the next test flight here in South Texas,
0: Jake. All right, Ed Lavandera in South Padre Island, Texas. Thank you so much. Coming up, the claim made by My Pillow guy Mike Lindell. Now debunked, which now has him paying up to the tune of five million bucks. That's a lot of pillows. Our money lead now. Lying has consequences, and sometimes those consequences require you to pay up millions of dollars. Fox learned that lesson earlier this week, and today, as CNN's Sarah Murray reports... One of Trump's biggest allies beyond Fox, a guy named Mike Lindell, well, it's his turn.
9: Election denier Mike Lindell ordered to pay up after making this multi-million dollar promise to anyone who could prove him wrong.
3: There's a five million dollar prize for anybody that can, that can prove the election data that I have from the 2020 election is false.
9: One cyber expert did, and now Lindell must pay. An arbitration panel awarded Robert Seidman, a Trump voter and software expert, a $5 million victory Wednesday after he sued Lindell. CNN obtained documents and depositions in this case. And according to the arbitration panel, Mr. Zeidman performed under the contract. He proved the data Lindell LLC provided unequivocally did not reflect November 2020 election data.
7: With
10: everything that was happening in the Dominion case in Delaware, we were sort of sitting on the edge of our seats. I wasn't surprised,
11: but I was relieved.
9: Lindell is a Trump ally and leading purveyor of 2020 election conspiracies who was seen at the White House in the waning days of Trump's presidency. Lindell later convened a 2021 cyber symposium.
3: This was attacked, uh, the whole technology was attacked.
9: Where he aired his unproven conspiracies and invited experts to debunk his data.
3: I want it to be the most watched event ever in history because we need everyone in this country to see what I have seen.
9: It didn't take long for Zeidman to determine Lindell's data was a dud.
2: When I got there, I found the data was just so obviously bogus. It surprised me.
7: The biggest cover-up in history.
9: Zeidman says he brought his claim against the MyPillow CEO because he worries about the impact of Lindell's falsehoods.
2: I just thought it could do a lot of damage to our country. If we want to investigate fraud, and I think we should, we have to be able to uh, be truthful about it. And Lindell is not being
12: truthful.
9: The arbitration panel concluded the data provided to experts was not related to the 2020 election. Lindell, in his deposition, clearly never expected to pay up. So you didn't have any concerns that someone might win the Proof mike wrong challenge?
13: <coughs> no, because they would have to show it wasn't from 2020, and it was, you know.
9: <laughs> and in a brief interview, he vowed to CNN, this will end up in court. Yeah, so will Zeidman ever see his five million bucks? His attorneys are hopeful. Zeidman, not so much.
2: I don't think so. I think he's going to delay this as much as possible.
9: Now, obviously, this decision is another blow to election denialism, especially in the wake, Jake, of that settlement between Fox News and Dominion. I did ask Robert Zeidman what he wants to do with the $5 million. If he does get it, he says he's going to donate at least some of it to nonprofits.
0: All right. Interesting. It's so interesting that he's a Trump voter also, twice. Yep. Twice. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Also in the money lead, that other defamation case uh, against Fox after that uh, $787.5 million settlement with Dominion voting systems earlier this week, Smartmatic. That's another tech company that makes electronic voting machines, and Smartmatic is suing Fox for $2.7 billion, almost double what Dominion tried to get. Smartmatic claims its brand was grievously harmed because of the deranged lies Fox aired, such as this baseless claim on Fox two weeks after the 2020 election. Take a listen.
14: The Dominion machines run the Softmatic software and, or uh, parts of the key code of it, and that is what allows them to manipulate the votes in any way the operators choose to manipulate them.
0: I mean, just nuttery. But anyway, here we are. Eric Connolly is the lead attorney on the Smartmatic cases. This is his first TV interview since Dominion settled with Fox. So, Eric, after Tuesday's settlement, you said in a statement that Dominion's case, quote, exposed some of the misconduct and damage caused by Fox's disinformation campaign. Smartmatic will expose The rest, unquote. So you're in the discovery phase of your case. Can you use what Dominion already dug up, all the depositions and text messages and and emails showing that executives at Fox and hosts at Fox knew that they were airing lies for months on end?
15: Absolutely. I, I think the evidence that Dominion brought forward is part of the evidence that we will also use to show Smartmatic's case is as strong as possible. It is... Shacking, what we've all seen in the public domain. We've already received all that information and discovery already, but it, it surely paints a damning picture for facts. But in addition to that, what I think is really unique about the Smartmatic situation is the recklessness that was involved here, Jake. It's, Smartmatic was in L.A. County, L.A. County only, and you can confirm that we are in L.A. County only by doing about a one-minute Google search. But notwithstanding that, what Fox and the, the other defendants were doing was saying that we somehow masterminded an ability to rig a national election when we were only in one county. So that level of recklessness is something you don't normally see. And uh, uh, the evidence that we will be able to put forward on this case is pretty overwhelming. Do you have
0: evidence like that that we got through the Dominion discovery phase? I mean, do you have additional emails and text messages and evidence that Fox uh, hosts and Fox executives knew that they were lying to the American people, to their viewers?
15: So we have all the evidence that was uh, introduced during the Dominion Dominion case, and we'll be collecting even more. Uh, the, The cases are very similar in that once you are able to establish that clearly Fox knew that the election wasn't rigged that they clearly knew the election machines weren't involved in rigging something all of that evidence is out there and we get to layer on top of that the implausibility of a company that was only in la county somehow switching the votes in georgia wisconsin in other states so yeah uh, the discovery that we're getting is um as strong as I think I've ever seen in a defamation case.
0: So I asked the Dominion CEO yesterday here on The Lead why the company didn't push and demand an on-air apology uh, and correction from Fox for all the lies about the company. Take a listen to part of what he said.
3: The defamation part of the law is really not built around apologies. Uh, It is built to um, compensate for damage. The unanimous consent in our company is if we could trade this all in and go back in time and have our company reputation back, we would do so every single time. Exactly.
0: So I'm wondering if after watching the Dominion case, if Smartmatic will push for an apology and a correction, if the case reaches a settlement phase, Fox viewers don't know about the $787.5 million uh, settlement. They don't know uh, that Hannity and all the executives acknowledged that all those lies were crazy behind the scenes? I mean, don't you think it's important to make sure that those millions of Americans get the truth?
15: No, I, I have a, I'll say long haul. I, went, I want everybody to think of the long haul here. Smartmatic is in this case for the long haul. They are looking to take this case through trial. They are looking through the vindication of a jury verdict in their favor, they are in this for the long haul. That was their intention. When they filed this lawsuit, that is their intention today. But equally important to your question, um, they're in this business for the long haul. We're talking about a company that spent over 20 years building a global reputation as being one of the very best election technology companies in the world and the only company that could serve countries internationally. Only one. Mm -hmm. That reputation is critical to them. And in order for them to get back to where they were before this all started, where they can win the contracts that they're now losing, they need to get an apology. They need to get a full retraction because they're in that business for the long haul. They're not looking to get out of that business. This is a family owned business that has spent their whole lives building this. Yeah. So you're right. Darn right. They need that.
0: If Fox offered you $787.5 million, as a settlement today, but no apology, no correction, no acknowledgement of having done any wrong. Would Smartmatic take it?
15: 787 million was a, a tremendous outcome for Dominion. And from our perspective, that set down a marker and it's a marker that we think we should be exceeding. The, the scope of the damage done by Fox to Smartmatic is on a global scale because we operate globally. And Dominion got a tremendous settlement, and Dominion got compensated for the businesses they were losing in the United States. Um, Smartmatic is looking for compensation for the business they lost in the United States and globally. So I would tell you, 787 is a good start, but it's not the right finishing point.
0: So all I'll say on my way out is um, don't forget about the American people. Don't forget about the people who care about democracy. Don't forget about the people who care about truth, because we don't have an ability to sue for those lies. You do, but we don't. So please don't forget about us when you're when you're coming up with the end of this case. Eric Connolly. appreciate it.
15: Thank you very much,
0: sir. We won't. Next, the latest shooting. After an innocent mistake, I'm going to speak to the grandmother of a six year old and parents, Attacked after the girl's basketball rolled into a neighbor's yard. Stay with us. In our national lead, a manhunt is underway right now for a person who reportedly began shooting at a group of families in his neighborhood after a basketball rolled into his yard. A six-year-old girl was shot. Her father is seriously injured.
8: Why did you shoot my daddy and me? Do
0: you do a dad? The suspect is 24-year-old Robert Singletary. Neighbors tell CNN that on previous occasions, Singletary acted as though he hated children in the area. He reportedly would yell at kids and did so Tuesday after a basketball rolled into his yard. He was confronted by a father, and shortly thereafter, neighbors say he came out and started shooting.
16: All the kids were down here, and I was hollering at all the kids to get away, get inside. And get I mean, they were all coming this way. They all threw their bicycles down and were running. Everybody was screaming and running. So you can add
0: this incident to this growing list of honest mistakes by children that escalated to gunfire. Other innocent offenses include wrong house, 16-year-old Ralph Yarall ringing the doorbell of a home, thinking he was at the right place, picking up his siblings. He was shot. Now he's recovering. Then there's wrong car. Two teenage cheer athletes approaching a vehicle thinking it's theirs. Then they were shot. Now one is recovering from serious injuries. And then wrong driveway. A car full of friends got turned around in rural upstate New York. The resulting gunfire from a homeowner cost 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis her life. But let's turn back to that case in North Carolina because with us now is Debbie White. She's the mother uh, of Jamie White who was shot. Uh, and the grandmother of jamie 's six year old daughter who we saw in that clip, who was also senselessly shot, debbie, first of all, our deepest condolences for you and your going your family are going through this mindless violence senseless violence let 's start with your son uh, Jamie he was seriously injured reportedly shot in the back how 's he doing right now
14: he 's just uh, trying to get better you know he 's got a, uh, still got some bleeding um, from the liver um, He's got um, a cracked rib, um, a collapsed lung. Well, not collapsed, but um, the bullet actually hit his lung, and um, um, you know he's just got a long way to recovery. You know, but he's just looking forward to coming home to his babies.
0: I'm uh, speaking of his babies. Uh, your granddaughter, we we saw saw her in that in that clip. She was shot. Thankfully. Not seriously injured physically, um, but right. emotionally, psychologically, I cannot imagine what this is like for her. How, how is she doing?
14: She's she's in good spirits. She knows she's. She said, "I really don't want to go back to that house," you know. But um, she, they're probably going to have to have a lot of therapy, you know. But um, and with the, all the news and stuff, she's just overwhelmed.
0: Yeah, look at that poor sweet angel. We're, look, we're, look, we're looking at a picture of her right now. Just a, just a, a beautiful little girl. Okay. It's so, so awful. Um, and, and of course, the suspect's still on the run. And some neighbors uh, in in your family's community yeah. tell CNN that they're afraid to sleep. They're afraid he might come back. That must be horrible. Right.
14: It's. It is. It is. I've had very little sleep. Um, you know, they found his ankle monitor behind my house, back over in the woods. So. You know, he could be anywhere at this point.
0: So if he's watching right now, and that's always possible, you never know, what would you, what would you right. say to him?
14: He needs to turn himself in. He needs to turn himself in and not hurt nobody else.
0: Some neighbors tell CNN that he, uh, the suspect previously acted as though he hated children in general. Uh, what do you know about him and any prior interactions he, he may have had with people in the neighborhood?
14: I've heard several of the neighbors talking when I was down there. You know, they were like, he just, he was just horrible, a horrible person as far as did not look like kids at all or people in just people, period. He didn't like anybody, you know,
0: well, De- especially kids. Debbie White, are our, Our our love and strength, we're sending them to you, our prayers uh, to you and and your son, Jamie, uh, and your granddaughter and your community. So horrible. Nobody should have to go through this. Thank you so much for talking to us.
14: You're very welcome. Thank you.
0: Coming up, a struggle so many families can relate to the burden on loved ones as they try to avoid the crushing costs of senior care. Stay with us. In our health lead, the oldest members of the baby boom generation, defined as those born between 1946 and 1964, turn 77 this year. And there are 73 million baby boomers. 73 million. therefore, thousands of baby boomer children and baby boomer grandchildren are facing a crippling financial and family dilemma, how to take care of their beloved aging boomers when the costs of long-term or specialized care might financially ruin them. And and for some, there is little government safety net to help them. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen talked to one woman who had to quit her job to take care of her 90-year-old mother.
17: That's all of us when we're little. That's me, that's Peter, that's you. Ada LaBarbera will be 90 years old next week and she's lived a great life. Originally from Puerto Rico, she met her husband, Peter, an accountant in New York City. They were married for 49 years. She was a teacher, had two children and two grandchildren. And now Ada has dementia and is often confused.
14: I have a great person over here. This is my mother and she is the
17: best. But this is her daughter, Tammy LaBarbara.
14: Ready? Your favorite. Thank you. This is my favorite.
17: It's an honor to take care of my mother. Good job. But like many Americans, Tammy needs help and she can't afford it. My mom needs somebody 20 hours a day.
14: Yummy, yummy, and the yummy. tummy. She,
17: she says saying. Medicare pays for someone to come to the house, but only somebody one day every other week for just 40 minutes. <laughs> and Tammy's son helps too. But Tammy has had to quit her job to care for her mother full time.
14: And I'm not asking for a lot, just a few hours a week, you know, just as someone I can go to the grocery store or I, you know, just have a little break for myself.
17: (laughs) But even just a few hours is way too expensive. This AARP calculator estimates that where Tammy and Ada live in Marietta, California, one hour with a home health care aid is $137. And residential care for Ada is even more out of the question. $4,000 a month for assisted living, and the national average for a memory care unit, nearly $7,000 a month. We don't have that kind of money.
14: She deserves to be well taken care of.
7: And we
17: get the doors shut on us.
11: There's nowhere for her to go.
17: This National Council on Aging report shows 80% of U.S. households with older adults are struggling financially today or at risk of falling into economic insecurity. We're care workers and we're drowning and we don't have help. Let me think because she and her mother have only her mother's social security and pension, just a few thousand dollars a month, so Tammy is burning through her savings. Ada is left with her memories.
12: That's my wonderful husband. Look at how good looking that guy is.
17: She cared for her husband and her son through cancer before they both passed away. And Tammy is left with dread.
14: I love to find solutions to problems, and I can't find a solution to this problem.
17: A Very American Problem, How to Afford Care for the People Who Once Took Care of Us. Studies show that seniors who suffer from chronic diseases like dementia are especially prone to facing heavy financial burdens. Jake?
0: Elizabeth Cohen, thank you for that important story. Coming up, a chance to be exonerated was rejected for prisoner Richard Glossop, who was on death row in Oklahoma. Can anything else save the life of this inmate? We'll talk to his attorney coming up. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Richard Glossop has come within hours of execution, not once, but three times. And now an Oklahoma appeals court has denied all requests to spare his life again. His attorney will join us live. Plus... Newly uncovered information about the federal judge in Texas who stripped FDA approval of a key abortion drug. It turns out he failed to share a radio interview where he discussed contraception before he was confirmed. What else did he not reveal before his confirmation? And leading this hour, there's a fight brewing in the nation's capital, and it could cost you a lot of money. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy unveiled his plan to raise the debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion while also cutting spending. But he's facing resistance from all sides. The White House refused to negotiate at all with House Republicans. And perhaps most worrisome for McCarthy, Republican lawmakers who said they don't support the House Speaker's plan. We're covering this story from both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill. CNN's Phil Mattingly at the White House for us. Manu, Speaker McCarthy, just to remind everyone, needs 218 votes to get the bill passed. He has a slim majority. He's not going to get any Democratic support. Does he have the numbers in his own party to get this passed.
5: Well, Kevin McCarthy is insisting that he will have the numbers, but at the moment he does not because a number of the members simply are not decided yet. They are still reviewing the details. This 320-page bill released just yesterday, something that has been the product of negotiations internally among Republicans for the past several weeks, that would raise the national debt ceiling by 1.5 trillion dollars. The debt ceiling already at 31.4 trillion, including in that a range of conservative policy priorities and cuts across the board on domestic programs, including including uh, adding a plan to block President Biden's loan forgiveness program, in addition to that, rescinding new funding for the Internal Revenue Service that was part of the Democrats' Inflation Reduction Act that was enacted last Congress. It would also boost new provide new work requirements for social safety net programs like Medicaid. But even as including some of those provisions intended to appease conservatives, some conservatives are not there yet. Even as the White House is insisting that they will simply reject this measure, and some Democrats too are concerned that the White House needs to negotiate with. Speaker McCarthy in order to avoid a default.
13: I'm still so struggling with it. Yeah, I'm still struggling with the fact that we, we're $32 trillion in debt. Are so you meaning no? If it was right now, I'd be a no.
0: Yeah, I think the Speaker of the House and the President of the United States should always talk, right? And so should the leader of the Senate. They should always be talking. So I think, I think Joe Biden should be talking to Kevin McCarthy, even if those conversations right now prove nothing productive.
5: Uh, But I I do think they should be talking. And what is your fear if these talks don't happen? Well, my fear is that this gets pushed all the way to the last moment. And then if we're at the last moment and things fall
18: apart, we we go off the cliff for the first time in default, which will be absolutely catastrophic.
5: So that last congressman, Democrat Jared Moskowitz, among a part of Democrats who are calling for the White House, the Senate Democrats, to change their posture, get to the negotiating table with Kevin McCarthy, something that the White House has said absolutely no to is they've called on Congress to simply raise the national debt limit without any conditions whatsoever. And I asked the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, how they would approach this next week if the House does, in fact, approve a bill, a Republican bill along party lines. He told me they will not change their he said everything stays the same. No brinksmanship, no hostage taking. Clean, 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 meaning he believes the debt ceiling must be increased without any conditions, something that Speaker McCarthy has rejected for months.
0: Yeah. And, and Phil, the, the White House, President Biden, they've been clear that they're not going to negotiate with Republicans on this. But now that they've seen a plan, has the administration changed its stance in any way? I mean, there is the plan right there.
19: Yeah, to some degree, uh, the the short answer is no. And to some degree, they've only hardened in their position. They have leveled no shortage of attacks at very specific elements of that proposal. They believe they hold the political high ground when you compare the president's budget released last month and the proposal that uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy released yesterday. But when it comes to the debt ceiling, Mono has it nailed down. They are very firm on the idea that there will be no negotiations, that they cannot negotiate over long-term fiscal issues, which the president, they say, is more than welcome to – or more than willing willing to talk about after the idea of a hostage-taking situation, in their their words, is taken off the table. Now, the question of sustainability, durability of that position is, I think, one that's kind of up in the air right now. As Manu mentioned, uh, Democratic leaders in the House and Senate, very much in line, spoke to the president by phone earlier this week, rank-and-file up to this point, have maintained their position behind the White House. Whether or not that starts to shift, like you heard from Congressman Moskowitz, that could change the dynamic, but for right now, they are dead set on the fact that there will be no negotiations over the debt ceiling, Fiscal negotiations, those can start after, Jake.
0: All right, Manu Raju, Phil Mattingly, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss, Republican Congressman Chris Stewart of Utah. He's on the House Appropriations Committee. Congressman, uh, Speaker McCarthy can only lose four House Republican votes and still get the bill passed because no Democrats are going to vote for it. Do you, does the speaker have the votes right now?
20: Uh, I, I don't think he does right now, and I think that's evident by several members have come out and talked with the media and said they wouldn't vote for it right now. But I'll tell you, Jake, I think he will. I'm confident that he will. The the conversations within our conference among Republicans has actually been very positive. There's not a lot of people, you know, staking out a position and saying, I won't move from this, you've got to give me this. Uh, There's been a willingness to compromise. And we all know that the outcome, you know, if we don't have a proposal we can give the president, is just so unacceptable. No one wants to default. No one wants to have the threat of default and for us to force a conversation with the president, we have to be able to put forward our proposal. So I think we're gonna see that legislation pass next week. Again, I'm confident that, Jake. But I tell you this as well, I can't imagine the president saying just simply, I won't even discuss this with you. I won't have any conversation with you, which is a position fairly inconsistent that he's taken in the past. For example, many of us remember you know, conversations taking place between John Boehner and President Obama, Uh, on New Year's Eve uh, about 10 years ago. Well, Vice President Biden at the time was the person responsible for negotiating. And we're just asking for the same opportunity. Come to the table and please discuss this with us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think his position is he'll discuss it, but not attached to the debt ceiling vote, that he will discuss the need to reduce the deficit and the debt. And just for those keeping track, the national debt is $30 trillion dollars. Um, I don't even I can't even fathom that figure. So your Republican colleague, Congresswoman Nancy of South Carolina, she's, she said that she is leaning towards no. And this is why. Take a listen.
1: I don't see a plan to balance the budget over the next decade. That gives me a little bit of heartburn. This is an opportunity to show the country that we can lead on fiscal responsibility.
0: So her argument is, how about a 10, ten year blueprint uh, that gets us to zero deficits? Um, that seems like a reasonable issue.
20: Yeah, it certainly does, and it's one that Republicans have been advocating for quite a while. And, and Jake, you said something that I think is reflected in, in a lot of American people, Republicans and Democrats. When you start talking $32, 33000000000000 trillion in debt, when you realize we've spent $12 trillion in the last two years... I mean, people know. You don't have to be a mathematician to know. That's completely unsustainable. And we say, well, we're kicking the can down the road for our children, our grandchildren. No, we're not. Not with those kind of numbers. That will have to correct. That will correct in a short period of time. And again, I think, I think Democrats and some of my progressive colleagues are uncomfortable with those kinds of numbers. Uh, so, and we just feel like the debt ceiling, as has been in the past, the debt ceiling is an opportunity to try to address that sequester something that was very unpopular it was very uh, it was very controversial, but it did do one thing it did cut government spending it did have savings. Uh, I think some of us feel like this is an opportunity to try to, to try to move towards that goal
0: yeah so here 's the other issue about this whole debate is that even if Speaker McCarthy gets every single Republican on board in the House uh, this plan has no chance of passing the Senate because Democrats are in charge there. Yeah. Um, an argument could be made as a, just as an independent voter. If you're really serious about negotiating, about solving this problem, why not have House Republicans pass a bill that Senate Democrats, or at least enough of them, are willing to go ahead on because that would actually show a seriousness?
20: Well, because we don't know what that would be. We have no idea what the Senate Democrats would consider agreeable because, uh, as you know, the Senate Majority Leader, Mr. Schumer, said the same thing the President said. I won't even discuss it. So we have no idea what the Senate would accept. And if they would have a conversation with us, maybe we could do what you've proposed. We would love to have a conversation and see if there's some bipartisan agreement, see if there's some area in the middle. But since they won't discuss with us, neither the Senate nor the President... All we're left to do then is to say, OK, this is what we would like. This is a, a, something that we think is a, to the benefit of our economic future. And now please discuss it with us and we'll, we'll see if they will. We hope that they will.
0: Republican Congressman Chris Stewart uh, of Utah. Thanks so much, sir. Good to see you as always. Thank you. Here to respond, White House Senior Advisor Mitch Landrieu. Uh, Mr. Landrew, good to see you. A growing Thank number you. of House Democrats calling on President Biden to meet with Speaker McCarthy Uh, We just heard from Congressman Jared Moskowitz of Florida, a Democrat in that piece uh, that that we heard earlier. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell said something similar to CNN's Manu Raju. What's the harm in talking? McCarthy, Biden, sit down, hash it
18: out. Will President Biden sit down with the speaker? Well, I don't want to get ahead of the president on on what he's going to do, but but one of the messages he wants to send clearly uh, to everybody uh, in this country is that you can't hold um, uh, America's full faith and credit hostage uh, with a threat to basically take a hatchet to the budget. They're two separate things. Whether it was President Reagan or President Trump and now President Biden, the debt ceiling is not something to be uh, trifled with. Uh, and that's what's happening right now. So I think what the president would like to see happen is for the grown-ups in the room to basically just pet, pass a debt ceiling bill like they've done many, 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 many times before. And then if the Speaker of the House and the members of uh, the House of Representatives and, and, the, and, and the Congress want to have a discussion about what the right vision for the country is. Uh, I think the President's all ears. And as you know, the President's already not only put his budget proposal out, but in the last two years passed four of the largest bills that we've seen that has created 12.6 million jobs, actually 800,000 manufacturing jobs, and has lifted up millions of Americans. But, you know, if you want to know where the values are, Uh, in this equation. Uh, The Speaker of the House went to Wall Street the other day to talk about his plan for the wealthiest of Americans. And the President, of course, was in Maryland talking to the working men and women of the United States of America. And I think that one of the concerns is, if you want to have the debate about budget cuts and about how we reduce the deficit in a way that helps working Americans, let's have at it. But decouple it from the debt bill. That's going to threaten the U.S. economy. It's going to hurt people it's going to devastate the progress that we've made. So let's get serious, pass the debt limit bill. Then if you want to talk about budget cuts or you want to talk about how we're going to grow the economy, we're all in.
0: So I understand the White House view, you want the clean debt limit increase, and then you're willing to negotiate over future future spending. The point of view from House Republicans is if President Biden isn't willing to sit down with Republicans now, why should they believe that he would ever be willing to negotiate in good faith uh, on such a divisive and, uh, quite frankly, an issue that nobody wants to actually solve because it requires imposing pain one way or the other, whether it's tax increases or
18: spending cuts or both. Well, let me say this. The president has great confidence in his vision for America, and the fact of the matter is that all of the polling data and the responses that we get indicated that the American people really like what the president has been doing, from his investments in roads and bridges and airports and ports and clean air, safe water, fighting wildfires, fighting drought increasing pay for firefighters, supporting veterans, supporting health care, reducing costs. Those are all things that the American people like. They also understand that in America, just like all of our mamas and daddies taught us, you pay your debts, especially the ones that you've incurred already, and you don't threaten people uh, in an effort to bring a hatchet to what you think um, the American people might or might not like. If you really have a lot of confidence in it, let's just have a straight-up negotiation on the budget. We're happy to do that all the time, but you cannot threaten the full faith and credit of the United States of America because it's going to tank the economy. Uh, And right now, with 12.1 million jobs on the line, that's critically important. On top of that, in the bill that the Speaker proposed, it actually reduces elements of the Inflation Reduction Act that sends jobs overseas and gives the jobs to somebody else when the president thinks that we ought to be returning manufacturing jobs to the United States of America. So listen, let's just not make it up as we go. Let's do what we've always done, pass the debt limit bill. Come down, have a serious negotiation. And if your vision is to cut taxes for the wealthy and cut cut programs for the poor and cut programs for the middle class in America, you know what? If you can sell that dog so that that dog hunts have at it, but we think you can
0: So I've been in this town longer than you because you were down in New Orleans. (laughs) Well, you're a lot older than I am, too, Jake. I don't know. Actually, I don't know how old you are. I'm 54. (laughs) How old are you? I'm about 82. (laughs) So... um, (laughs) I'm old enough to remember when we had this whole thing playing out when Obama was president and there was a commission set up. This is what politicians do to kick the the can down the road. They set up a blue ribbon commission. This one was called the Bull Simpson Commission. to come up with a plan to reduce the deficit and eliminate the national debt, which again is $32, $33 trillion. And, you know, it it came up with a bipartisan plan, which is the only way that this is going to happen, which includes spending cuts the Democrats didn't want, And spending cuts in defense uh, that Republicans didn't want. And also tax increases. Okay, And that's everybody like who's not running for office understands that that's that's how this gets solved because it's so big right now. And then President Obama distanced himself from that plan. That was his own commission. And so I can't take any of this seriously. Nobody wants to solve the problem because it's going to require imposing pain on people that politicians are then going to turn around and ask for their votes.
18: All right. Do you, you are you old enough to remember that when Ronald Reagan was president, you're certainly old enough to remember when Donald Trump was president that they didn't have a fight over the debt limit. The same Republicans of that course, have a it's all right hypocrisy. Okay, so hundred percent. So, so wait, that's the first point. Secondly, all right. obviously the deficit is a problem. The president knows that. The president's proposals have actually reduced the deficit uh, by a substantial amount of money, and three trillion dollars is on the table. The question is how you reduce the deficit. Do you reduce the deficit? by giving a tax cut to the wealthy and giving a break to Big Pharma and Big Oil, uh, and then cutting services for everybody else like veterans and firefighters and police officers? Or do you reduce the deficit yeah. by investing in America and making sure that Big Pharma and, and the folks that have a lot of money actually pay their fair share? The president's ready to have that fight. Let's talk about who's got the best plan for reducing the deficit. And yes, get serious about it, but that's different. From holding the full faith and credit of the United States of yes, America yes. as a hostage. That is a fact. All right. And we can have that fight later on. And you know what? We're all in. We're ready to do it. And we're ready to have that discussion. But just pass a debt limit bill and let the adults in the room start governing the country.
15: All right.
0: Mr. Mayor, good to see us always. Thank you, Jake. Coming up, he's the Texas judge who imposed a near total ban on an abortion drug with Now, CNN has dug up a radio interview that he probably should have disclosed before he was confirmed as a judge. Plus, one employee says he sold his family dog in order to return to work in person, and the CEO applauded. Wait until you hear what the CEO said about single parents. In our health lead, as we await the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on the fate of the controversial ruling from Judge Matthew Kaczmarek in Texas blocking access to the popular abortion pill, Mifepristone, CNN's K-File team has uncovered two undisclosed interviews Kazmarek gave, Christian Talk Radio, in which the soon-to-be federal judge referred to being gay as a lifestyle and expressed concern with growing cultural acceptance for, quote, people who experience same-sex attraction, unquote, and lots more. Andrew Kaczynski of CNN's K-File joins us now live with the details. And and Andrew, the, the judge you say, did not disclose these interviews during the confirmation process, even though he he was supposed to.
21: Yeah, that's right. He's supposed to disclose any interviews, media, um, articles that he's written. Uh, And he didn't disclose these two interviews that he did uh, on Christian Talk Radio, where he talks about um, gay rights and contraception. And what's interesting is that gay rights and abortion were two issues that – proved to be flashpoints during his nomination process. He was asked about these again and again and again. Both of these interviews took place in 2014. Uh, They were shared by uh, his employer at the time. Uh, And he was brought on by, according to the host's own words, to talk about the homosexual agenda. And I'm just going to run through a few of the things that he said on this show. Now, he said that the federal government had joined the culture war against uh, same-sex marriage opponents. He says being gay is a lifestyle. Uh, The host brings up that Christian groups, he feels like, could eventually be viewed as hostile to the government, almost in line with al-Qaeda, and he says he agrees. Uh, And and just take a listen to this quote where he talks about uh, divorce, um, contraception, and the sexual revolution.
19: Yeah, and I just want to make very clear, uh, people— People who experience same-sex attraction uh, are not responsible uh, individually or solely uh, for, for the atmosphere uh, of, of, of the sexual revolution. You know, it, it's, a, it's a long time coming. You know, it, it, it came after no-fault divorce. It came uh, after uh, we uh, implemented very permissive policies on contraception. You know, the sexual revolution has, has gone through several phases. We just happen to be at the phase now where same-sex marriage is at the fore. Whoa, very permissive
0: policies on contraception. That's an interesting uh, turn of phrase. Uh, what is Judge Kasmerick saying now about why he didn't disclose these radio interviews before his Senate confirmation?
21: Uh, so we did reach out to his chamber. Uh, and what Kasmerick told us was that he did do uh, a search for these uh, these uh, interviews. He said he didn't find them telling us uh, in a quote that he did run searches for all the media, but did not locate this interview and did not recall this event, which involved a call-in to a local radio station.
0: Interesting. Andrew Kaczynski, thanks so much. Appreciate it. An appeal for hope rejected. And now an Oklahoma death row inmate's execution is moving forward for its fourth time. His attorney will join us next. Stay with us. In our national the Oklahoma court upheld the murder conviction of death row inmate Richard Glossop. Glossop, uh, you may recall, was convicted for hiring someone to kill his boss, even though that witness, the actual killer, seems rather unconvincing to many observers, including the Oklahoma State Attorney General. Glossop's execution is now set for May 18th. This all comes just two weeks after a special counsel in that state released a report that uncovered new evidence in Glossop's case and suggested that his murder conviction should be vacated. CNN's Bryn Gingras as always, is with us on the story. And Bryn, what was the evidence uncovered in Glossop's case?
10: Yeah, Jake, a lot of that evidence is uh, from a box that was finally given to the defense team for Richard Glossop from the prosecutor's office. And in that box, there was just a lot of paperwork that talked about Justin Snead, the person that you just pointed out, who actually killed uh, Barry Van Trees, the boss of Snead and Glossop uh, in this murder decades ago. Some of that included Justin Snead actually wanting to recant his testimony, to his asking about it at least, to his attorney. Another was, a a psychiatrist saying Justin Snead had a bipolar disorder that was never even brought to the defense's attention. So just questionable things that the defense attorney uh, for Richard Glossop thought the courts should look at a little bit closer and at the very least, let there be another hearing regarding all of this new evidence. But of course, as you just uh, laid out there, the Criminal Court of Appeals in Oklahoma in a 5-0 decision said, no, it wasn't sufficient evidence to uh, vacate this conviction or at least Stay this execution. And now time is running out, quite honestly, for Richard Glossop. Uh, his execution date is May 18th. There this is a case that has just grown internationally. Uh, a lot of people would like to see a change in this ruling. Uh, not just his defense attorneys, but also the attorney general mentioned it and actually asked the criminal court appeals uh, to bring this case to the lower courts. In response to that, the attorney general, who is a Republican, I might add, in the state of Oklahoma, said in a statement, I am not willing to allow an execution to proceed despite so many doubts, ensuring the integrity of the death penalty demands complete certainty. I will thoroughly review the ruling and consider what steps should be taken to ensure justice. I asked his office, what does that mean? And they said they're still trying to review that. That is what is also happening with his defense team, um, who is going to take this case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Jake.
0: All right, Bryn Gingrass, thank you so much. Joining us now, Richard Glossop's attorney, Don Knight along with Oklahoma State Representative Kevin McDougal. Thanks to both of you for being here. Don, uh, you say you're going to challenge this ruling all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The execution is set for May 18th. Do you have enough time?
16: Well, it 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 was a devastating ruling by the court. I, I think, you know, when the attorney general of the state of Oklahoma says that he thinks that this witness makes material misstatements, you know, that's now undisputed. So there is no reason to believe that witness at all. So we've got a, a person who is the only one that has uh, said Richard Glossop had anything to do with this is now, you know, an admitted liar. And the court won't see through that and, and allow a new trial. So uh, we will be filing in the uh, a writ in the United States Supreme Court um, and we probably take action in other courts as well. We cannot allow this. I, I'm with uh, the Attorney General in this. Uh, he's a very courageous man to take the steps that he's taken. And when he says he can't allow this to stand, well, you know, I can't either. We won't.
0: You know it, it, I mean, you talk about the witness. The witness is the the actual admitted murderer. It's just that he's accusing Glossop of paying him to to kill him. And I've never even heard of such a situation where the murderer uh, is given so much deference. Um, Representative McDougall, um, Oklahoma Attorney General Drummond, not exactly a soft-on crime guy. Uh, he says he's, he's not willing to let the execution proceed with so many doubts. Can the Oklahoma legislature do anything to help? Is there a role
13: for Governor Stitt, perhaps? There is, absolutely. And we are going to fight and make sure we're not putting a, a guy to death that doesn't deserve death. Uh, Governor Stitt, we're going to ask him to give a 60-day stay. That'll give us a little bit more time. Uh, the Court of Criminal Appeals stated State law is the reason why they couldn't go along with the attorney general. Uh, So we're now looking at adding a paragraph in the post-conviction relief law in Oklahoma uh, here in the next five to 10 days, getting that through and signed by the governor so that we can make that change and send it right back to the Court of Criminal Appeals and see if they can make another decision. And and Don, the, uh, the Oklahoma Court of Appeals denied
0: the request for a new trial or a stay of execution in a unanimous vote. Why do you think that was unsuccessful given... The amount of support Glossop has received, not only by the state attorney general, but by so many Republican and Democratic legislators.
16: These justices have been trying to kill Rich Glossop for 26 years, and I have no real idea as to why. He's just a a normal, simple, poor man, and there is no reason for them to continue this sort of, I don't know what word to use, uh, almost like a vendetta. They want to kill him. Uh, they, they made it clear that they have ruled uh, and they almost seem offended that anybody can bring new evidence. And we have a lot of new evidence to bear before he's executed.
0: And for people who are, who are watching and don't know the story, I mean, what you need to understand is Mr. Sneed is the murderer, but the prosecutors gave Sneed a deal. He would not go to let death row if he said that Glossop paid him to do it. And of course, Sneed went along with it. And since then, Sneed has privately expressed remorse to his attorney and who has said, well, you got to keep quiet about it. You got your deal. Um, it, it's really just anybody who just reads about this. It's outrageous on its face. Representative McDougal, you and nearly 100 of your colleagues in the Oklahoma state legislature have signed a letter calling for something to be done. Why are you so convinced uh, of his innocence?
13: Well, once I started reading through all the paperwork, I mean, there's so many things in this case. There's destroyed evidence by the state. Uh, There's witness tampering, missing evidence uh, that was turned in. Uh, There's Brady violations, uh, uh, detectives leading witness. I mean, there's so many things wrong with this case. And finally, we got an attorney general who's tough on crime uh, that looked at this case. and, And his very first words to me were, he's guilty. And after looking at the case and starting going through everything, he said, there's no way that we can actually rely on the court's decision years ago. And he recommended a vacation of this case and, and uh, have to agree with him. And, and he and I together are going to fight this thing. The court could have easily taken one of the two paragraphs in post-conviction relief and granted uh, the attorney general's wish. But instead, they chose not to. Uh, So we're going to give them one more opportunity. If I can get this law changed, get the governor to sign it uh, and make it retroactive, uh, they'll have one more chance. And if they deny this next chance, then I'll be seeking impeachment uh, for the judges here in the state of Oklahoma, because it's ridiculous to see the evidence in this case and for them to ignore it. And Don Glossop's
0: been on death row for for decades now. He's had had his final meal three times. How's he holding up after this latest disappointment?
16: Really, really hard, Jake. Um, He 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 said today to me, Don. You know, should I be prepared to be killed on May 18th? And and that was about as low a point as I've seen him. And this is his ninth execution date. Uh, This is this is tough. He's he's been down this road far too many times. No one should have to endure that.
0: You know, I, I, I I've anybody who has gone into one of these cases and seen what the state is willing to do to kill somebody, even with reams of evidence of, of, of reasonable doubt. You can't unsee it. You can't unsee it. Uh, Don Knight, State Representative Kevin McDougal, thank you so much. Please come back. We're going to stay on this case. Thank you, Jake. Still ahead, a military fighter jet drops a bomb on a group of villagers. Then an attack helicopter comes and shoots anyone still moving. The government says they were targeting rebels, but CNN talks to survivors who say that the victims were women and children and elderly people. Stay with us. Our world lead now, women, children, and the elderly in a remote village in Myanmar, massacred by their own country's military. Myanmar's military dropped a bomb on villagers gathered for a religious celebration. Minutes later, an attack helicopter came through and finished the job, mowing down anyone still moving. This is the worst attack since the country descended into civil war two years ago. The current military rulers claim... They're targeting rebels and resistance fighters. But CNN's Anna Corrant interviewed survivors and witnesses of this attack who say it was women and children being targeted. I want to warn you, some of the images you're about to see are quite disturbing.
12: On this dusty mound near a grove of banana trees, villagers don't know where to walk. Everywhere they turn is another dismembered body. Legs, arms, severed heads... Human flesh littering the earth. We can't recognise who they are, says the man filming this video. There are so many. Hundreds of people had gathered for a community celebration last Tuesday in Pazigui, part of a self-governed district in Sagai State, northern Myanmar. They'd come for breakfast on the eve of Tinjung, a Buddhist New Year festival, families, the elderly, and dozens and dozens of children. (laughs) 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 M*****, cries this man. What did these kids do wrong? At 7.45am, a a military jet dropped a bomb on the building where they'd gathered, according to witnesses. Minutes later, an MI-35 attack helicopter (laughs) mowed down survivors and continued to circle for the next 15 minutes, firing at anyone who moved. (laughs)
21: We heard a boom. I hit the ground and there was a huge cloud of smoke. I got up and realized my daughter was missing.
12: As the wounded screamed for help, this man searched among the dead and injured for his three-year-old daughter and his parents.
21: It was a killing field. There were people scattered everywhere. A woman with burst intestines died in front of me. I was shaking. Why would they kill their own civilians?
12: And then, after several hours, he found them.
21: My father was cut in half from the waist. My mother's body unrecognisable. My daughter was
3: headless.
12: He says he lost seven family members. Others lost their entire family. With fears of more aerial attacks, villagers quickly gathered the bodies for cremation. Burn, burn, burn. We are trying to burn the flesh of the dead. The day's final death toll, according to the National Unity Government, 186 people killed. The deadliest attack since the junta seized power in a coup more than two years ago. The military confirmed the bombings, saying they were targeting rebel forces who've been fighting Myanmar's military government. But CNN has interviewed over half a dozen eyewitnesses of last week's attack who say the target was civilians. This man lost 30 relatives, including young nieces and nephews.
21: I don't know why they targeted
6: a place full of pregnant women, children, and the elderly. The military are not human, they are more savage than animals. During our interview, a jet flies over.
12: Jet fighters coming. The threat ever-present. While the latest massacre sparked international condemnation of the junta and the countries that support them, such as China and Russia... The families of the victims say it's just more empty words. How many more children have to die before the world's leaders take action, pleads this man, grieving the loss of his baby niece. He says this is genocide. Anna Corrin, CNN.
0: And our thanks to Anna Corrin for that incredible journalism. How students in just three words upended the search for one school district superintendent. That's next. Today, House Republicans passed a bill that would ban transgender athletes from competing in women's and girls sports at federally funded schools and educational institutions. The bill is not expected to pass the Democratic-controlled Senate. In western Massachusetts, the divisive gender issue has a school system in East Hampton struggling to find a new superintendent. CNN's Omar Jimenez explains why.
3: When I walked in this building today um, to uh, meet with a group, I felt like I was coming home. Um, I don't think I could have kept a smile off my face if I tried.
8: This is how Vito Perone's journey began to superintendent of the East Hampton School District in the Springfield,
3: Massachusetts area. Which is a position I've always aspired to.
8: But he says it all ended with three words in an email. Ladies, good evening as he addressed the committee chair and her executive assistant, laying out contract requests for his salary, vacation days, and more. It ended up, though, being a good night for his chances at superintendent, he believes, telling CNN he was told it was a microaggression, that he apologized. And when he was growing up, ladies and gentlemen, was a term of respect. People talk about a teachable moment in the classroom. Could that have been a teachable moment? Unfortunately, never got the chance. He's gotten support, though, from many in the East Hampton community, where he was once a principal.
19: It's an embarrassment. I think he have been a tremendous superintendent
20: here. It's a term that's used for uh, respect. Um, maybe it's old fashioned to some people, but I think it's uh, overblown and was used as an excuse not to hire him.
8: Part of a statement released from the chair of the school committee says, I was insulted, but also noting it wasn't their only concern, laying out requests Perrone made in that email over salary, vacation, and sick days. There were too many concerns before we had even begun negotiating the rest of the contract, the statement continued, despite Perrone feeling these were just requests that they never got to any negotiations they made the right decision. I just wish it hadn't been another freaking piece of bloody meat thrown into the pool with those culture wars. Perone's opportunity was rescinded, so they went to the next candidate, who was flagged by a student shortly after as having posted, quote, conservative transphobic rhetoric on social media, complaining about trans women in high school athletics. Not long after being selected, she pulled out of the running, continuing the ongoing saga for the school district. Now, we've tried to reach out to that candidate, Erica Faginski-Stark, but we haven't heard back. I should also mention the school committee executive assistant, one of the two ladies, as was initially addressed in the email, has come out after the fact and says she likes the term lady and that she stands by it. She sees it as a term of respect, but she also said that she respects anyone who may be offended By that term. The next meeting for the school committee is on Tuesday, where they have on the schedule trying to search for another candidate for superintendent. We'll see if this next candidate actually sticks. Jake.
0: Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. In our politics lead, we could soon see the U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, officially known as the Chief Justice of the United States. Summoned to Capitol Hill. CNN's Alex Mark in for Wolf Blitzer, and he's going to have this next in the Situation Room. Alex, why
16: would he be summoned to Capitol Hill? Well, because this is all part of the fallout around Clarence Thomas, uh, the justice of the Supreme Court. It was recently revealed by ProPublica that for years, decades even, he and his wife accepted uh, gifts and luxury travel from uh, the Republican megadonor Harlan Crow. So, Jake, there have been growing calls on Capitol Hill among Democrats for action to be taken uh, against Thomas. Uh, For example, the senator from Connecticut, Richard Blumenthal, calling for Thomas to be subpoenaed. Uh, That was, of course, roundly rejected by Republicans. So perhaps as a compromise, we're seeing the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Dick Durbin, now inviting, not subpoenaing, but inviting uh, the chief justice to appear in a hearing in about a week and a half. Uh, We have yet to hear back from the chief justice.
0: It's high time for a code of ethics for all All nine of the justices, not just Clarence Thomas. Alex Marquardt, we're going to see you at the top of the hour. Still ahead on the lead. You think your boss is bad, an employee selling his dog so that he can return to the office, and his CEO applauds him. Huh? Stay with us. (laughs) Topping our money lead, the latest head-tilting tale of return to the office. Utah Tech CEO James Clark applauded one of his employees for selling his family dog after the CEO demanded that his staff return to in-person work. In a bit of a rant, Clark challenged his employees at the digital marketing firm Clearlink to work harder than he does, and he suggested mothers on his staff might be better off quitting. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz is all over this story. Vanessa, that's not all. Tell us more of what Mr. Clark had to say.
11: This was a rough town hall uh, for Mr. Clark. He's clearly frustrated that his employees are not back in the office full time. But we're in a different work era, Jake. People are working hybrid. They're working remotely. As you mentioned, he applauded his employee who sold his dog in order to comply with back-to-work orders. Clark said he did did feel heartbroken about about that. He also said that he found it rare that his employees, particularly women, could be full time caregivers and parents and also work full time. He also questioned whether some of his employees were working second jobs and using artificial intelligence to do their jobs at Clearlink. He also said this listen,
19: some have already quietly quit their positions, um, but are taking a paycheck. In one month this year alone, I got data that about 30 of you didn't even open or crack open laptops. And those are all remote employees, including their manager for a whole month.
11: Now, ClearLink did not respond directly to the comments made by their CEO, but they did send us this statement. They said, quote, to help achieve our collective goals, ClearLink recently announced a return to office of four days a week for the majority of our Utah based employees. We look forward to having these team members join us at our new world class global headquarters in Draper, Utah, and appreciate the efforts of all of our committed team members, which includes those who work in the office and those who will continue to work remotely as we accomplish our best work together. Uh, Certainly this statement, Jake, a different tone than the CEO took. Uh, I should also mention this is a tight labor market right now. Employees and job seekers have options. Many companies looking to retain employees and hire new ones. Uh, TBD on what happens at Clearlink. Jake.
0: Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thanks so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen To the lead, once you get your podcasts, all two hours, just sitting right there like a big, delicious, sizzling steak off the grill. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Alex Marquardt. He's in for Wolf Blitzer, right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow.